Last week at the end of Ruth chapter 2, we saw that Naomi's faith was being revived. She finds out by chance that Ruth had spent the day gleaning in the field of Boaz, who, it turns out, is a kinsman redeemer of Naomi's family. That means he's a relative who can buy land, thus redeeming the family from poverty. And he can also perhaps, perhaps, raise up offspring to perpetuate the name of the dead. In other words, he can make the Abrahamic promises of land and seed, which are Old Testament pictures of eternal life. They point to Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, and the redeemed creation. He can make those promises a continuing reality for a hurting family, an impoverished family in Israel. And we saw last week through Ruth's diligence, and especially through Boaz's kindness, his hesed, Naomi realizes, she has an awakening of sorts. She realizes that God has in fact not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. It's a wonderful point in the story where she realizes that God has been faithful and that he has not lost track of her. And that his hesed has not failed. And so Ruth continues to glean through the harvest. Probably about six or seven weeks, roughly the time from Passover to Pentecost, she continues to glean in the fields of Boaz. And then at the very end of chapter 2, we're told that Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. That is, she's in need of a husband. And that brings us to today's text. Ruth chapter 3, we'll make three points, and they're on the back inside page of your bulletin. Naomi's strategy, Ruth's courage, and Boaz's grace. So first, Naomi's strategy. So a number of weeks have passed, it's important to remember this, a number of weeks have passed from the first meeting of Ruth and Boaz, six or seven. That means a number of weeks have passed since Naomi became aware of Boaz's existence and all that that entails. And nothing, it appears, nothing has developed between Ruth and Boaz. There's not going to be any quick nuptials here. And it's clear that Naomi's been thinking about this. Like her wheels have been turning since she heard that it was in Boaz's field that Ruth was gleaning. So she's had six weeks to concoct something. One day the text opens, one day she says to Ruth, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Just the the words every single widowed woman wants to hear from her mother-in-law. Naomi has a wonderful plan for your life. My daughter, let me take care of your situation. I'm going to find a home for you. Harold said to me, uh, we could title this chapter, Naomi the Ancient Matchmaker. And there's a good bit of truth to that, though I'll qualify it a little bit later. But you know, at least now, at least now, Naomi is thinking of other people. And she's thinking of the future rather than 
wallowing in bitterness and self-pity. That's what knowing that the hesed or the kindness of God hasn't ceased can do for you. That really is a sign of transformation, right? If you're stuck in your spiritual life and depressed, the thing is to go do something for others. Think about another person and do something that lays a marker down about the future that says, I'm, I'm going to cast my seed and my gifts and my talents into the future. That's why a building project is a wonderful thing. Or, or, or a new set of instruments is a wonderful thing. Because it's a statement of, of, of a people oriented to the decades to come. Right? And so... Get out and serve someone. Show some hesed to somebody else. This is a key to your own liberation. And Naomi has tasted the hesed or the kindness of God. And now, it's taken her a few weeks, but she's thinking about other people. And she's starting to orient herself to the future. We always have a bright future. Because Christ is the resurrection and the life. And so the church is the people of the future. But there's something else that Naomi's doing here. She's reading the divine providence in the appearance of Boaz. And then she's extrapolating, right? She's drawing her own conclusions about what has to happen. And this usually, beloved, is a very bad idea. It's good to take trusting, holy initiative. It's bad to be rash and, and run ahead of God. And one of the the gifts of the book of Ruth is that the way the narrative is written is it forces us to do some thinking, some reflecting on God's providence and how to read it, what to to say about it, how to interpret it. Now here I want to cite the great Puritan preacher, John Flavel. He once said this. He said, the providences of God are like Hebrew words. They can only be read backwards, right? You read Hebrew from the right to the left, right? You read Hebrew this way. And he's saying that's how God's providence are are to be read. After God does something, we can look back, we can see his hand. Naomi, however, wants to help him out with what she sees as his future works. She wants to read providence forward. We tend to be afflicted with this disease. In other words, she does this. She says, oh, this is in place, and that's in place, and that's in place. So this over here should happen next. That's what God probably will do. Wants to read Providence forward. She wants to predict what God's going to do in light of the present configuration of events in her life. Who doesn't do this? We'll come back to this. You know, another good thing here, and we saw this of Boaz last week, is that Naomi is becoming the answer to her own prayers. Right? Back in chapter 1, she prayed for Ruth she, and, and Orpah, by the way. She prayed for them both, that they would find rest in the home of another husband. And here she seeks to bring about that rest. It's another good sign. So, she begins unveiling this matchmaking plan to Ruth in verse 2. She says this, Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Right? He can buy the family land. He can perpetuate the name of Elimelech. 
He can do this by marrying Ruth, because Ruth's husband, Malan, was Elimelech's son. So and in doing this, he would, of course, have to become Ruth's husband. Right? Now, this is also an important point. He's not obligated to do this. This is not a mandatory law in the Old Testament. The kinsmen, as we'll see later in Ruth, could decline. I mean, if this was mandatory, you would just demand that Boaz get on with his duty and Naomi wouldn't have to cook up this provocative plan. So here's the plan, she tells Ruth. Tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, these threshing floors, they're usually outside of town. That is, they're somewhere remote. And so she tells her to wash and put on perfume and put on her best clothes. So Naomi is trying to facilitate a marriage here. That's what this is about. And the the text echoes the uh, marital language that God uses when he chooses and he finds Israel. Similar sort of language used here. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord speaks to Israel in these marital terms. He says this to, to them. I bathed you with water. I washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. So Naomi's evoking this language. After getting ready, then Ruth is to go down to the threshing floor secretly, uninvited, remain hidden, clandestine, until Boaz is finished eating and drinking, because harvest time is celebration time. So, to speak plainly, there's a kind of recklessness here. Well-intentioned, perhaps, but reckless nonetheless. Reckless with respect to Ruth's safety. Boaz had already had to tell the men not to touch her. And that was in broad daylight in the field. Even Naomi herself previously said, look, it's good for you to stay by Boaz's servant girls. You could get hurt in another field. Now she wants to send Ruth out alone at night to the more remote threshing floor where a fair amount of drinking will be going on. If she had a website, it would be (laughs) recklessmatch.com. But the plan's most questionable feature, the most questionable feature here is in verse 4. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go uncover his feet and lie down. Now, this is a much-discussed passage in the history of interpretation of the book. All of the key words here can have double entendres of a sexual nature. They can have a second meaning. Lying down, uncovering. Even the word for feet here, they're all used in the Hebrew Bible in more explicitly sexual contexts. Now, they can all be taken innocently here, but in this, you know, you're in a nocturnal context where you've bathed in perfume, put your best clothes on, and the male is eating and drinking, and the place is secret, and the place is remote. You're uninvited, and one has to wonder then exactly what Naomi was thinking. It's really shocking advice, this plan. A girl most likely in her 20s, a Moabite woman no less, 
alone with an older man to whom she's not married in this posture. This is what Naomi's come up with after six weeks of reflection. Both Ruth and Boaz's integrity and purity are put to the test here. If we want to give Naomi some benefit of the doubt, and I think that's a nice thing to try, um, we could say that she must trust both of them pretty deeply to put them in this situation. Nevertheless, the situation is fraught with moral danger. There's a lot of things that could have gone wrong here. And so after Ruth uncovers and lies at Boaz's feet, she is simply to wait. He will tell you what to do, Naomi says. He'll tell you what to do. See that at the end of verse 4. So that's Naomi's strategy. The second point is Ruth's courage. Ruth has vowed a kind of allegiance to Naomi. So she simply goes and does what she's told. Right, she's pledged herself to Naomi. We saw that. Right, so after, and in, and in verse 7 here, after eating and drinking, Boaz, the text says, was in good spirits. He lies down near the grain pile. He's had his fill to eat and drink, and he's going to guard the grain pile. That's why you would lie down there. Ruth approaches quietly, uncovers his feet, and lies down. Now, in the middle of the night, the text says, some translations say at midnight, something startles Boaz, and he awakes. Now, remember, the story of Ruth has already called upon marriage language. It spoke of Ruth cleaving to Naomi. Same word used of a man cleaving to his wife in Genesis. It spoke of Ruth leaving her mother and father to come to Israel. Right Earlier, the washing, perfuming, clothing language we saw, that's covenantal marriage language. And so here you have Boaz, Adam-like, like Adam, waking from sleep to find his future bride sitting there next to him. He wakes and he turns and the text says, and there was a woman at his feet. We talk about a disorienting reality. Not only is this surprising, It's awkward, and it's morally dubious at best. I mean, I don't know how we'd react, you know, when you get woken up in the middle of the night to some strange noise or some weird things happening, or or woken up in the middle of the dark and you find a strange person in the pitch black darkness. But Boaz shows great poise here by simply saying, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? It's classic Hebrew understated narrative. Who are you? I'm your servant Ruth, she said. And what happens here next is truly remarkable. Remember, Naomi had told her that at this point, at this point, he will tell you what to do. So here's Ruth. She's in a very vulnerable spot. And she ignores Naomi's advice. She ignores it. She takes the initiative and boldly, counterculturally, she asks Boaz to marry her. That's what she does. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. 
This is the language which Boaz used of Ruth earlier when he said, she had come seeking shelter under the wings of the Lord. The word translated corner of your garment can mean wings. Spread your wings over me, is what Ruth is asking Boaz. And the ESV translates it as wings. This is covenant marriage language that Ruth is using. When she says, spread the corner of your wings, or spread the corner of your garment over me, she is saying, marry me. The Ezekiel text I cited a few minutes ago goes on and it says this. When you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you. And I covered your nakedness. I gave my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord, and you became mine. So again, Boaz is being asked by Ruth to marry him, meaning, I'm asking you, Boaz, to be the answer to your own prayer. Because you remember, he prayed for the Lord under whose wings Ruth had sought refuge to bless her richly. It's remarkable. Now Boaz is being asked to be the wings of God over Ruth. And so this is an act here which would be akin to an engagement ring, a pledge to marry. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Now, we know why Boaz should do it. Ruth says, since you're a redeemer for our family. But I want you to notice the word our in the text. Ruth is not simply asking for marriage. She's certainly not asking for marriage in the modern sense. She's asking for Boaz to be her lever, meaning in accord with the Leverite laws, to raise up offspring for the family name. And she's calling Boaz to be a redeemer, to buy the land at risk for Naomi's sake, and to care for her as well. You are a redeemer of our family. Notice what Ruth doesn't say. She doesn't say, marry me because I'm smitten with you. Marry me because I'm falling in love with you. Right? This is not your standard marriage proposal. And to read the text that way is to take all our modern baggage and import it back into the culture of ancient Israel where it doesn't exist. I mean, if this was a marriage proposal, it would be absurd. Sinclair Ferguson says it would read this way. Single, impoverished, widowed, Moabite woman, seeks wealthy man from Bethlehem, must love, and I mean love, my mother-in-law. That's what's going on. Naomi engineered this situation, and she's part of the deal. You're the redeemer of our family. This is about land and kin and the Abrahamic promises and these Israelite institutions of the Redeemer and the Leverite. That's why Naomi's not really a matchmaker in the modern sense of the word. She's self-interested here. Right? So what Boaz is being called to do here is very, very costly, both in terms of his personal commitment and in terms of money. Look, Boaz could be already married. The impression in the text is that he's not, but let's be clear, there'd be nothing morally wrong if he was. He could fulfill the obligations of Redeemer and Lever if he were married. 
To be the goel or the redeemer is an act of deep sacrifice emotionally and economically. And that brings us to the third point, Boaz's grace. In verse 10 he says, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Kindness here is hesed. I want everyone to learn one Hebrew word in the, in the series of Ruth. H-E-S-E-D, hesed. Maybe the most important word in the Old Testament. It's a key word in the book of Ruth. It comes up again and again and again. It means covenant love, kindness, generosity. The earlier kindness, so Boaz says this kindness is greater than the earlier kindness. Well, what's the earlier kindness? It's the kindness that Ruth showed to Naomi. When she, when she, her grand cleaving to Naomi and refusing to return to Boaz. This kindness, this choosing Ruth as uh, Boaz as her redeemer, is also a kindness, an act of hesed, shown to Naomi. Who is Ruth showing kindness to here? Boaz doesn't think that he's showing kindness, she's showing kindness to him. She's showing kindness to Naomi and to the dead males in the family. Boaz recognizes this. This act of kindness, Ruth, that you are showing to Naomi and the dead males in the family is greater than the first act of kindness that you showed to Naomi when you pledged your life to her. That means Boaz knows that he's not the object of her affection, or at least the primary object of her affection. The hesed of Yahweh is. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, Boaz says. I mean, from Boaz's point of view, perhaps she has options. I mean, if she was marrying for her own sake, and not for Naomi's sake, and not for the family's sake, she would have options. And Boaz recognizes that that's not what she's doing. Now, I know this strips a lot of the romantic luster away from the story for people. We can come back to that. She was noble, and the word of her nobility had gotten around town. Of course she hadn't run after younger men, rich or poor, and the reason is simple. She's marrying out of obedience to the Torah of Yahweh, for the sake of Naomi, for the sake of perpetuating the family name. She's not looking for the best eligible male. She's not looking for her soulmate. She's not marrying out of some modern sense of adult need fulfillment. She needs a kinsman of Elimelech. I mean, that really restricts your search on Match.com, right? Must be a blood relative of my dead father-in-law. She's not marrying for love or money, or even primarily for herself. She's marrying out of Yahweh's hesed. Now, I do think it's subtle in the text, and it's mostly between the lines, but there does certainly appears to be a genuine respect, uh, and perhaps more, maybe even desire between them. You have to squint to find it in the text, though. But even if it's there, this is a case where one's desires and one's biblical duties happen to converge. So scholars through the centuries have asked, you know, does the writer care at all about the romance side of this? About the, about the chemistry between Boaz and Ruth? The answer is either no, he doesn't, or 
He does, but he thinks less, and I mean a lot less, is more. But the way Hebrew narrative is written, it does, in a sense, invite the readers to think and to enter into the text. It gives you space to breathe and get into the story. So Ruth, it's going to turn out this way, doesn't marry for love or money, is going to end up getting both. That that is the real beauty of this story by the time it's over. Love, substance, and provision. Boaz, Boaz immediately agrees to Ruth's proposal. And his zeal here is one sign, really one of the only signs in the text, that he's taken with Ruth. He immediately says yes. And the heart of his attraction is that, notice this in the text, all the people of my town or in the town know that you're a woman of noble character, he says. This is also an important um, echoing uh, word by the narrator. The word for noble character was used of Boaz himself in chapter 2, verse 1. He was called a man of standing. That's the same word. This is the root of their compatibility. They are both noble souls. There's a nobility of soul in Boaz and in Ruth. They're both seeking the same thing, the Lord God. What's interesting about this nobility here is that if you look at a Hebrew Old Testament and you look at the way they list their books, it's different than the Old Testament you have in your Christian Bible. Um, Their their canon or their list, in it, Ruth is after Proverbs. And that's almost certainly because the Hebrew people felt that her noble character makes her a Proverbs 31 woman. And so the book was placed there by the ancient Israelite communities. She's already known in the gates as the wife in Proverbs 31 was. All the people of my town, Boaz says in verse 11, that is literally all the gates of my people. All the gates of my people. She is both She has both the nobility of the Proverbs 31 woman and that nobility is known in the gates. And so Boaz is willing and he's able. So Boaz is willing and able. Why hasn't he acted over the past six plus weeks? And we get that answer next. Namely, there's another kinsman redeemer more closely related than Boaz. Right? Besides showing the integrity, the respect for the provisions of the Torah that Boaz has, right? Boaz knows there's someone else in line besides me, so even if I am interested, he doesn't act. But besides showing that, this also shows the rashness of Naomi's plan. Right? This is an important little detail here. Go perfume yourself up, go down at night where they're eating and drinking, lay down by this guy, and oh, What do you know? There's somebody in line to be the kinsman redeemer before him? Naomi doesn't even know this. As I mentioned last week, I find this astonishing. Right? This is Bethlehem in 1100 or uh, 1200 BC. She doesn't know that Boaz is there as a kinsman redeemer. And not only that, she doesn't know that she has two kinsman redeemers in that town. One wonders, how much effort did she make to find out? There's another redeemer sitting at the head of the line, Boaz tells Ruth. 
And of course, here we think, what is Ruth? Is this a bitter pill for Ruth, or is she happy that maybe there's somebody else younger than Boaz? Who knows, right? But she's there with Boaz, and Boaz says, well, I'll marry you, but there's this other guy in line first. So, ever concerned for her safety, Boaz says, stay here for the night. In the morning, he's going to check with this other redeemer. If he wants to redeem, fine, but Boaz swears an oath, I'll do it if he doesn't. So he, t- he does seem eager. Right? He sends her off. He's very, very concerned at the end about her reputation, right? her purity. He wants to make sure that nobody knows she was there. He fills up a shawl with 80 pounds worth of grain, which is a sign of the abundant, plenteous redemption that Boaz is eventually going to supply for the family. And, and Ruth goes back and returns to Naomi, tells her what has happened. Again, Naomi, who left full and returned empty, is being filled up by the Hesed of God through Boaz. And so the story, at this point, leaves you waiting. Waiting for this momentous matter to be settled, which the text says is going to happen that very day. That very morning. So I want to conclude with with two applications. First, it turns out, as you all know, that Naomi's scheme worked. She thought she read and discerned what God wanted to do. She recklessly sets out to move things along. And things turn out okay. That is, of course, due to God's great mercy and kindness. But it would be a dangerous example to follow. It would be ruinous to imitate Naomi's example here. Providence, as we said earlier, is read backwards. We are really not to be in the business of projecting what God may or may not do in the details of even the short-term future. We don't know it. One theologian once said, Providence is the Christian's diary, not his Bible. That's a magnificent saying, by the way. Providence is your diary, not your Bible. Right? There's, there is a good bit of grasping and manipulating in Naomi's scheme. You write in your diary after God has done something. You read it backwards. Leave writing the future to God. There's a glorious liberation in this, of not being incessantly concerned with figuring out what needs to happen and what should happen and what God might be doing. Another way to put this, let me put this a second way to try and get this across. I think this is a very important pastoral point here. We could put it this way. Um, If it is true that Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God to us, right? if it is true that in the past, as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God spoke to our fathers in many portions in many different ways. right? God used to give the fathers dreams and visions and theophanies. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. He is the final, full, complete, sufficient, luminous, unparalleled, definitive speech of God to the church. And if that speech has been sealed to us in Holy Scripture, then that word is what we should be obsessed with. right? That word we should be scouring. The questions we should have should be about that text. And we should start reading that word and stop reading events and extrapolating from events like they were little tea leaves. Providence is largely inscrutable to us. It is actually a sign of spiritual immaturity to be obsessed with it. 
We are to be obsessed with the final, decisive, definitive speech of God which has occurred in Jesus Christ and which is sealed to us in Scripture. And Naomi isn't. Now, it's true. We often do this, and God in his kindness makes things work out. But I think we all know that many times we think we know what's going to happen in the short-term future, and we turn out to be very, very wrong about it. But the issue is not whether we're right or wrong. The issue is, which text are we reading the most carefully in our lives? The text of events? The configuration of people and assets and things? Or the text of Holy Scripture, which directs us to the Word, who is God's very speech to us? The second thing to notice here is that Boaz directs us to Jesus. That's the beauty of Boaz's character here. And he does it in this way. Many ways, actually, but I'll just touch on a couple of them. Christ was not obligated to redeem. Right? The Redeemer's not obligated. This is a beautiful thing. After man falls, God owes the human race nothing. He would be just, and he would be good if he just left it in its condition. The fact that he freely undertakes to redeem springs from his infinite love for us. He takes the duty willingly and freely. Jesus sees the plight of us, right, as poor and oppressed, much the way Boaz sees the plight of Naomi and Ruth and the family. And he acts. And in that action, Jesus becomes our kin. He stoops down and takes your very flesh up, your very humanity with all of its frailty. Flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. And you know what he does? He spreads the corner of his garment the beautiful robe of his righteousness over us and says to you, you are my bride. I purify you. I beautify you. I cleanse you. And then he's raised as the firstborn among many brethren. See, the kinsman idea is right there when Jesus calls you his brothers and sisters. He's made you part of a new family, an everlasting family. A a perpetual seed destined for an enduring land and an unfading, secure inheritance. We see in Boaz a shadow that points us to these grand realities that we have in Christ. And for this, for this we should be ever praising God. And I think to that end, there are no words more fitting than these from Peter's first epistle, which was our New Testament lesson this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance, a land, if you will, that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen.